0: The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Bitcoin
1: fund trading is underway for the second day following the SEC's approval of the first U.S.-listed exchange-traded funds tied to the cryptocurrency.
0: We're going to see and we already are seeing cost push pressures in the pipeline. I suspect we will see inflation at the CPI level get stuck at 3%. And then the Fed is going to have to make a difficult decision, either tolerate it for longer or try to reduce it to 2% too quickly and risk um, the real economy.
2: California saw a 25% drop in revenue. That's comparable to the financial crisis and the dot-com bust. The state now faces a $68 billion deficit. That is the largest in California
3: history. It's now battling demands to cut spending or raise taxes. California legislators proposing a wealth tax and some warn of further wealth flight
2: if tax increases go even further. California lost 27,000 tax filers who made over $200,000 back in 2020 and 2021. Meanwhile, Florida and Texas, which of course have no income taxes, have seen population gains.
4: U.S. fighter jets streak off an aircraft carrier along with British warplanes in a counterattack on Houthi rebels in Yemen. U.S. officials saying they zeroed in on more than 60 Houthi targets, including airfields and radar systems that the Houthis have used to attack commercial ships in the Red Sea. Since mid November, the Houthis have terrorized one of the world's most vital waterways for international trade, launching missiles and drones at cargo ships, including American ships. The militant group, which is backed by Iran, started the attacks to show support for Hamas in its war with Israel. The Houthis now warning they will hit back even harder. A mass protest in Yemen's capital, which is controlled by the Houthis. Carrying Palestinian flags, thousands chanting, death to America, death to Israel.
0: This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team.
5: Stocks ended up the week with slight gains after last week's drubbing in the market. The S&P 500 overcame big losses in airline and discretionary spending stocks, ending up the week in positive territory. The index is less than three-tenths of a percent from an all-time high, a record that has not been surpassed in over two years. In other news, the consumer price index rose more than expected last month. It rose three-tenths of a percent, versus expectations of only a two-tenth of percent rise. Overall, inflation is up 3.9% year over year. What happens in the economy this year and next will depend on the outcome in this year's presidential election. The difference between both parties could add up to $6 trillion in new taxes and massive new spending programs that will drive deficits even higher in the years ahead. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplav and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Jim Welsh will join me at the top of the hour. You'll want to hear why he isn't buying the soft landing scenario and what the 17-year cycle is telling him about the future direction of the stock market. Following Jim, I'll have an in-depth discussion with world-renowned petroleum geologist Art Berman on his recent article, The Beginning of the End of the Permian, and what that means for U.S. oil production And oil prices in the years ahead. And finally, in part two of today's program, we'll share our own views on the consensus and how we are handling investments this year with a barbell approach that is both defensive and on offense. But first, let's find out the stories moving the markets this week with Ryan Poplava. This
3: week, the S&P 500 finished up 1.84%, recovering from last week's rebalancing and profit-taking, given the nine weeks of consecutive gains previously, as we head into a new tax year and we saw some gain harvesting as a result of that. The iShares core U.S. aggregate bond ETF also finished the week up 0.92%. West Texas oil, pretty volatile this week, was down 1.53% to $72.68 early in the week, There was also gold, mostly flat, up $1.80 to $2,051.60. Finally, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield finished down to 3.95%, down nine basis points from last week, so back below 4%. There weren't any key events that shifted current market sentiment, except really in oil. Uh, Early in the week, news Saudi Arabia is aiming to cut crude prices for February in all regions because of weak demand caused crude oil to drop, to $70.82. However, on Friday, the U.S. and its allies conducted strikes on military targets in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen, which caused oil prices to finish back up at the end of the week. There have also been threats of retaliation by Houthi, and the Iranian Navy seized oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman that were at the center of issues last week between Houthi and the U.S., The good thing is that there wasn't a flight to safety in U.S. Treasuries that usually coincides with events like these as rates remained stable the week. The federal funds rate has been a hot topic to start the year, given predictions by speculators in the federal funds rate forward market as seen in the CME FedWatch tool. We've seen a high prediction of rate cuts starting in March and for six overall cuts in 2024 based on speculators in the futures markets. These predictions went down from the FOMC minutes after they were released the first week of January, but ended back up this week. The probability of a rate cut in March moved up to 74% chance, which I found odd because yields haven't fallen much this week. Fed officials aren't voicing for it. And because the economic results weren't damning. Fed Reserve Bank President John Williams said Wednesday that he thinks the Fed will need to maintain a restrictive policy stance for some time. Cleveland Fed President Mester on Thursday on Bloomberg TV said that March is probably too early for a rate cut, so we're not hearing it from Fed officials. December's Consumer Price Index released this week was actually hotter than expected, up 0.3%. This indicates that the deceleration in the year-over-year rate is slowing down, the producer price index was a bit more helpful to the views of a rate cut with prices declining 0.1% in December, with deflation showing up in a few areas. Other readings like employment continue to be solid with low unemployment claims in the past week, around 202000 with employers holding from any deep cuts. Consumer credit showed a big jump, up $23.7 billion in spending in November, while the small business optimism indicator ticked up. To 91.9 from 90.6, which is a helpful leading indicator on chief financial officer views of their industry and companies. This week kicked off the earnings season with major banks reporting on Friday. FactSet reported last week that estimates for the S&P 500 earnings are down versus their 5, 10, 15, and 20 year averages, as seen in the changes from late September to the end of last year. This week, FactSet reported that negative guidance being issued is also at a rate above historical averages, with 72 of 111 companies of the S&P 500, that's 65% are issuing negative guidance ahead of the earnings season. Microchip and Samsung were some key pre-announcers this week. Tuesday, Microchip warned on revenues coming in below expectations and Samsung warned on operating profit down 35% year-over-year. Despite these warnings, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index finished actually up 3% on the week. The banks, UnitedHealth and Delta Airlines Friday kicked off their first quarter earnings season with a ho-hum start. UnitedHealth was down 3.4%. Delta Airlines was down 9%, Bank of America down 1.1%, Wells Fargo down 3.3% were notable decliners due to their earnings announcements. Delta Airlines beat both earnings and revenue estimates, showing strong international travel in the fourth quarter, but it was their guidance of a mere 4% annual growth in 2024, coming off of seeing it rise to 95% last year, that saw the stock sell off aggressively. JPMorgan Chase was down 0.7% after initially setting a gain, while Citigroup finished up 1% after initially being down following their earnings announcements. Getting into the weeds with the financials, JPMorgan said quarterly earnings slipped 15%. Bank of America beat earnings but missed on revenues. The CEO also said he sees a soft landing for the economy and consumers are still in the game. Wells Fargo is predicting lower income in 2024 and saw a jump in credit loss provisions. BlackRock beat estimates and announced the acquisition of Global Infrastructure Partners, which specializes in private markets and saw uh, BlackRock finish up on the day. At Citigroup, there were a lot of one-time charges related to restructuring, the devaluation of the Argentina peso, and a FDIC special assessment. On the plus side, Debt underwriting revenues jumped 43%. The advisory group showed 11% growth. Personal banking grew 12% due to higher interest income and higher deposit spreads. City announced 20,000 job cuts over the next two years as part of their restructuring plan and thinks they're going to get it right this time. That covers this week in the financial markets, the economic announcements, geopolitical risks rising in the Middle East, and the kickoff to the earnings season. Next week, more earnings announcements, of course, as well as retail and housing data to discuss. Up next, Jim Welsh at Macro Tides. Well, it's not just in the U.S. that we have a contentious political election coming up, but also around the globe. 3 billion people as a whole are going to be electing new policymakers into office. We're going to discuss this and the general geopolitical forecast and outlook for 2024, which was just released by Rain Network. And we're joined today with Rain Network's Director of Analysis, Adriano Bossoni. 2024 is going to be a very interesting year because we have a configuration of um, factors and trends that make the year very, very unique. There will be an abnormally high number of elections around the world. Um, Around 3 billion people will be impacted by, by these elections. And I am talking about countries um, ranging from uh, the United States and Mexico and the United Kingdom to the European Union, uh, South Africa, India, Indonesia, just to name a few. It's a a very long list of countries holding elections. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button
1: at financial sense wealth management we are committed to helping you build maintain and preserve your wealth contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services whether you're planning for retirement taxes putting together an estate plan or need assistance in managing a 401k financial sense wealth management is here to help Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says Contact Us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management.
5: Well, one of the big issues coming up this year is will we have a soft landing? Will the Fed be able to generate a slowdown in the economy without throwing us into a recession? Wall Street is hoping the Fed will start cutting interest rates as soon as March. Well, let's take a look at that. Joining me on the program is Jim Welsh from Macro Tides. Jim, right now, there's a lot of optimism on Wall Street that they're gonna generate a soft landing. And as Paul said, they've done it before, but the last time I saw it was 1995. What are the odds that they can do that? So let's talk about what could go right from the Fed's perspective and what could go wrong.
2: Well, what could go right is exactly what's been happening, if you will, over the last year, with inflation coming down uh, in a meaningful way, without a big tick higher, in the unemployment rate. As you know, the unemployment rate, I think, was 3.7 in the month of December. Uh, That's hovering just above a 50-year low at 3.5%. So from the Fed's point of view, Jim, the best thing to happen would be inflation continues to come down and uh, the unemployment rate doesn't go up much. And that combination, uh, they believe, would get us to that soft landing nirvana that they're hoping to achieve.
5: Now, you talk about something in your latest Macro Tides about the 17-year cycle and what that implies. And typically, when the Fed goes on pause, earnings hit a peak, and it's kind of a lagging indicator. When the Fed starts cutting rates, that's not a good sign because it usually means that the economy is heading into recession.
2: You're right. Wall Street hopes that the pathway for lower rates is going to be driven by a decline in inflation without damage to the economy. So that's why you know Wall Street is really pretty bullish at this point in time, because they think they're on the cusp of all that falling into place. The problem is, as you noted, the last time we had a quote-unquote soft landing was 1995. Powell also back in March of 22, when they increased the funds rate for the first time, talked about 1984 and 1965 as periods where the Fed increased the funds rate fairly significantly, but there wasn't a recession. The one thing that he omitted was that during those three years, including 1995, banks didn't increase lending standards uh, by much at all. And so the, the price of credit went up, but the availability of credit really wasn't diminished. And so small businesses had complete access to credit which is one of the reasons why in those three years cited that the economy didn't go into recession. The problem is that over the last 18 months, uh, lending standards have been increased at their fastest rate in the last 40 years. So this is one of the lag effects that I think is going to gradually wear the economy down uh, as we proceed through 2024 uh, and cause the economy to slow markedly. As we approach mid uh, mid year, the other thing that has really helped keep the economy going, Jim, is excess savings. So out of the pandemic, consumers had amassed over two trillion dollars worth of savings going into twenty twenty three, uh, because you know for a period of time we couldn't go out. The government distributed a few trillion dollars of direct payments to consumers, and the net result is consumers have had this fallback of a pool of money that would allow them to continue to spend. And the problem is that (laughs) that isn't inexhaustible. Slowly but surely, that excess pool of uh, savings is being whittled down because the savings rate has dropped from about 8% pre-pandemic to, I think, the most recent number was about 3.3. So what's going to happen as, you know, we go through 2024 is more and more people will have burned through their excess savings. And at some point in time, what that means is an increasing number of consumers will start to cut back on spending. So to me, that's what awaits us over the next uh, six to nine months, uh, is uh, you know, consumers pulling back. And as they do, small businesses will be forced to start to lay off workers. And we will see the unemployment rate tick higher especially in the second half of this year.
5: You know, it reminds me, the market's been really excited. Last year, the story was AI. But if you look at AI and what its implications are, it's going to be more people are going to be unemployed. Google just laid off hundreds of workers because of using AI. So yeah, that's exciting. But the broader implications,
2: a lot of people are going to be out of work. That's that is, Well, it's a transition, Jim. I mean, when spreadsheets came out in the 80s, a lot of people were very fearful that you know, accountants and other people would be re, you know kind of replaced by a spreadsheet. There was a transition. And slowly but surely, as spreadsheets got integrated in, into, a, if you will, the new way of doing business, it actually did create other new jobs. And I suspect something similar will happen over the next decade or so as AI is integrated into the economy. On the front end, though, what you're pointing out, is that at the beginning, we're likely to see more job losses than, uh, you know, AI being accretive to job growth, because that is the transition. That's what's going to take time. So in the short run, it's likely to have a depressing effect on the labor market.
5: I wonder if you make some comments. We got that nice Santa Claus rally heading into the end of the year. And the indexes were starting to broaden. It just wasn't the magnificent seven. You saw other sectors doing well. And then all of a sudden, January begins. We've been in a downtrend. Explain to me, is this part of that 17-year cycle that you see or what's going on here?
2: Well, let's just you know, touch on the 17-year cycle itself. And then let's you know, fit in the trading activity of the last two, three weeks. So going back uh, 17 years, it's interesting, Jim. 17 years ago, of course, was 2007. The S&P made a new all-time in October of 2007, only to be followed by the financial crisis. 1990, the high came in July. Uh, There was a significant decline after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. 1973 uh, was also a significant high, followed by a decline of about 50% in the majority of the market averages. You had the Arab, uh, the formation of OPEC, uh, the Arab embargo. Before that was 1956. The Fed had increased rates for a period of time. The economy slipped into recession uh, in '57, uh, and then finally 1939 at the advent of uh, you know World War II. So the reasons have varied in terms of the market hitting a high, and then the S and P has subsequently declined by at least 20% after each of the 17-year cycles going back uh, to 1939. And so what it comes down to, Jim, is, you know, you touched on people being very bullish, expecting all this stuff to go right uh, for the economy to achieve a soft landing and so forth. And the Fed's going to be cutting rates aggressively. Wall Street thinks the Fed's going to cut rates six times. So my point is the table set, the bar is very high. I think uh what's likely to happen in the near term, the Fed is not going to be cutting rates. And we can talk about, you know, what's going on inside the FOMC and why I believe that's the case. Um, but I do think the economy is going to slow as we get to mid-year and beyond. So what that implies to me is the expectation level is very, very high coming into 2024 and the odds are I think those expectations are not going to be realized which then will dovetail into that 17 year cycle where the S&P will hit some kind of a high uh my guess is in the first quarter and then we'll see a fairly significant decline uh you know towards the end of 2024 and likely into 2025 as well because in the last Uh, you know, a few iterations of the 17-year cycle, the declines, some were very sharp and brief. But in 73, 74, 2007, 2008, uh, obviously 1939, um, you know, those were multi-year unwinds and declines in the market. So that to me is the setup for the 17-year cycle is that expectations are high and I think they're not going to be realized which creates disappointment and would create selling pressure.
5: Explain what you see going in the market now, because, I mean, if you take a look at all the happy talk going into the end of the year, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the indexes were broadening. It wasn't just the magnificent seven. You saw a lot of sectors start to pick up. And then all of a sudden we start the new year and it's just down, down, down. What's going on here in your opinion?
2: Well, you know what happened I think at the end of last year Jim is this idea that hey, we're not going to have a recession, earnings are going to be up 12% and to top it off, the Fed's going to be cutting rates aggressively because inflation has come down. It doesn't get any better than that. So as we moved into this part of the, you know 2024, initially I think investors who had gained, uh, you know, a lot of profits in 2023 by being in the Magnificent Seven? I believe what we saw was just some simple profit taking, uh, so they could put the tax liability from those profits out into April of 2025. Uh, what we have seen is, uh, I think, a reappraisal, and this is what I wrote about in the January macro ties: is that it was unrealistic to believe that the Fed was going to be cutting rates in March. Uh, And and so I think what we're seeing, Jim, is this realization creeping in that the combination of the employment report last Friday, which still showed decent job growth, uh, at the same time the CPI report coming in and saying, oh, maybe the Fed isn't going to be cutting rates in March. So I think that's, you know, you had this overly optimistic narrative coming into this year And now some of that is being dialed back, which to me, again, confirms the idea that coming into this year, the bar is really, really high in terms of people expecting a perfect outcome. And as we have progressed, you know, gee, it's not going to go quite the optimistic way we expected. And I think that's why you're seeing some selling pressure pick up, because people really believed that the Fed would be cutting in March, May and June. So, I mean, again, Wall Street has this very aggressive view in terms of how quickly the Fed is going to be cutting rates. I think it's completely unrealistic. Um, And if you look at the FOMC, the dots that they provide every three months, September, December, we see a huge range uh, now at the December meeting. In other words, the the FOMC member who had the highest Gee, this is where I think the Fed funds rate's going to be compared to the FOMC me- member who had the lowest. The range was 150 basis points. At the September meeting, Jim, it was 25 basis points. So my view has been that a chasm has opened up inside the Federal Reserve. You have two groups, those who think, hey, inflation is down. We got to cut the funds rate because as inflation comes down, if we hold the funds rate steady, the, the real funds rate will increase, which represents uh, a, you know, a, an increase in monetary tightening. The other camp is, you know, I think we can be patient <laughs> and we should wait a while and we should keep the funds rate at a restrictive level for a while until we're fully convinced that we are going to see inflation comes down. So that is going to make Powell's job tougher in coming meetings, because for about 18 months, the Dove's uh, and what I call the patient hawks, were all on the same page. Um, now we've seen this chasm develop, and my belief is, at the March meeting, Powell will uh, convince the doves that being a little bit more patient will be the right course. And that's why I don't think the Fed's going to be cutting the funds rate in March, and the data points that we receive in terms of the job number and the inflation report you know, kind of support that outlook.
5: You know, the other thing we've seen, we've seen, what, 14 months decline in the ISM manufacturing report. You you said that there was a possibility that the market could go up or maybe even hit a new high, uh, let's say by March. What would cause that? I mean, we're about ready to start earnings reporting season here in a week. Uh, Would it be earnings or what would drive that in your opinion?
2: I think a couple of things, Jim, is that the economy, I think, is going to continue to be chugging along. Uh, the thing we have to keep in mind is that the goods sector, which is what the ISM manufacturing uh, numbers you know reflect, represents less than 15% of GDP. The service sector is about 80%. So what's happened is, as people were stuck in their houses during COVID, they bought a lot of stuff. And then once things improved and they could go out, now they're going on trips, they're going out to restaurants, they're going to concerts, all things related to the service sector. So what we need to see is the service sector weaken appreciably. I think that's going to take a little while. So in the near term, I think the economy is going to continue to plod along uh, and Wall Street can continue with the idea of, hey, earnings are going to be okay. Yeah, the Fed may not cut rates in March, but... It's not the end of the world. They'll be cutting them after all anyway. So to me, that's the narrative that's likely to persist for a while and why the S&P can make a higher high in uh, the first quarter. Um, So that, I think, is just a continuation of the extremely bullish narrative um, that we saw at the end of 2023. It's just getting modified a little bit. And we're seeing the market react to that modification of, okay, little disappointment that they're not going to cut in March, but they're going to be cutting down the road. And so I think that's why the market, after a pullback, is likely to try to push higher with the S&P going up to a new high. Final question. So
5: given this scenario, what would you be doing now as an investor?
2: Well, I I, again, my take is that we are, you know, we talked about the 17-year cycle, I think sometime in coming months, it could be in the next three months, the S&P will record a a fairly important high, and we're going to see a fairly significant decline as the economy does indeed slow markedly, and Wall Street's expectations of no recession get challenged, you know, that the economy is going to slow enough to make them think, oh, wait a second, maybe we aren't going to avoid a recession after all. So I think people should be very defensive uh, in selling into strength over the next month or two because I think the market, the 17-year cycle, which has been pretty good, what it implies is 12 to 18 months from now, the S&P is very likely at some point in time in that window of time be down by 20%. Now, the one thing I will say is I would look to buy TLT I think TLT is trading around 97, 98. I think it could drop below 94 uh, over the next uh, two, three months. But my expectation, Jim, is that if my scenario of the economy slowing materially uh, evolves correctly, we're going to see Treasury yields decline significantly as we get closer to mid year. And TLT has the potential of trading up to 105 to 109. With an outside chance that it can actually trade all the way up to 119. Again, that's all predicated on uh, the economy slowing markedly as we start to get towards mid-year. So that, to me, is the scenario uh, of where uh, I think investors could benefit. You know, in terms of taking a position in something that would improve on a slowdown in the economy.
5: All right. Well, listen, Jim, as we close, why don't you tell our listeners how they can follow your work at Macro Tides?
2: Well, thanks, Jim. dot uh, macrotides.com and I think you're going to be posting something to your website of some of the charts we talked about the 17-year cycle, Jim, and one of the is uh, part of the piece that'll be on your website are charts going back to 1939 showing the S&P 500. So your listeners can really kind of, for themselves, (laughs) take a look at this cycle and to determine whether or not uh, they agree with the uh, analysis. So uh, again, I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you again for having me. And uh, yeah, macrotypes.com.
5: All right, Jim. Well, listen, thanks for joining us on the program. Happy New Year to you, by the way, and look forward to talking to you once again. Thank you so much, Jim. Happy New Year to you, too. Hi, I'm Jim Paplava. I started Financial Sense in 1985 to give clients a boutique personal investment experience that's hard to get at a large company. For three decades, my company has been helping families build, manage, and protect their wealth through tailored financial planning and investment management. If you are looking to make Financial Sense of a complex world, give our office a call at 888 486-3939 486-3939 to speak with one of our advisors today and let us help you plan your future. Well, last year, the U.S. surpassed previous records on oil production. Production got as high as 13.2 million barrels a day, with the U.S. far exceeding Saudi Arabia in Russia. And many in the EIA thinks this can continue to 2050. Well, not so fast. Joining me on the program today is Art Berman. He's a petroleum geologist with 40 years experience. And Art, I want to begin. Last year, we... Produced A record amount of oil, 13.2 million barrels. Output increased by 1 million barrels last year. In a recent article, you reveal that the Permian and the Eagleford oil recoveries have fallen by 30% and the Bakken by 20 Can you explain for our listeners, how can production be up and well performance be decreasing? Sure, Jim. And I know that probably seems confusing to some people, but let me
6: explain. So when I talk about well performance, I'm talking about how much oil and gas a well or the average well can make in its lifetime. So, you know, in the world of oil, we call that estimated ultimate recovery. And you know, I can get into describing the differences between that and reserves, but let's just say for now that they're essentially the same. So that's how much oil a well is going to make in its lifetime. And that is decreasing and decreasing by kind of an alarming amount. Now, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what's happening right now. Okay? So, as long as those wells are producing at high rates, which they are. Then current production is going to be high, perhaps higher than it was a year ago. But the overall amount of oil we're going to get out of that well is less. It's front end loaded. And so what these producers are very good at, to their credit, is getting high rates early on. And so the two things are not contradictory. It's kind of like running, a, you know, a sprint versus a marathon. You know, you can run a hundred yards or 200 yards faster than anybody else. But then you run out of steam and the guy who's been, you know, fifth or sixth in line who hasn't used up all his energy early on passes you and ends up winning the race. So, you know, the two things are related. Both are important. And somebody who's thinking in the very short term might say, well, you know, I don't care about the life of a well. I mean, heck, you know, that's 20 years, 30 years in the future, but that's the wrong way to think about it because most of these shale wells produce 75% of everything they're going to produce, like in the first three or four years. And the concerning thing is, is that the rates on those wells that are performing poorly, are already below the rates from wells drilled just two years ago. So we're going to see that much sooner than later. I mean, like, we should start seeing it in 2024, 2025. Now, the other qualification is, sure, but if these operators keep drilling a gazillion wells, then we may not see it so quickly. In other words, you know, you you cover it up with volume. So the point is, is that like many things in, in the real world, oil production is complex. And I'm not trying to say that it isn't. But I have unraveled the complexity as well as my 40-some-odd years in this business allow me. And I'm not saying that the Permian or the Shale plays are done or that we should expect them you know, to go to zero. Not at all. They're going to be around for a long, long time. All I'm saying is that their performance is starting to deteriorate, which means that in some reasonable amount of time, a year, a couple of years we're going to see
5: them peak and decline. It's it's just that simple. Another point you make, Art, is wells are producing, as you just mentioned, at higher initial rates, but they're declining faster than in previous years. In essence, the wells are burning out and they're overdrilled and they're cannibalizing production from each other. I think this gets a little technical, but the spacing between wells, I think it's somewhere around 1,000 or 800 feet would be ideal, but they're bringing them in closer. So if I was to use an analogy, Picture a glass, you're putting a lot more straws in the same area. That's a perfect
6: analogy, and that's exactly what's happening. And so, you know, five or six years ago, the industry developed a technology that allowed it to measure quite accurately just how far out the artificially created fractures that are produced in fracking you know, how far out they extend and actually, you know, physically represent them on a map. And this is called, a technique is called micro seismic. And so when that data became available, engineers, as they often do, got to work and started calculating, well, you know, what is the optimum distance between these Horizontal well bores. And at that time, and I'm talking about, you know, 2017, 2018, I think kind of a rule of thumb number that the engineers were coming up with was about a thousand feet and, you know, plus or minus. I mean, obviously there's no single number, you know, for, you know, these are, there are a lot of different plays and there are even different reservoirs within plays. But let's just say for round numbers, a thousand feet. And I think what happened was, I mean, I know what happened was, is that as the techniques improved, and they have improved, the producers began to think, well, gee, you know, we can do better than that. You know, we can space these wells maybe, you know, 750 feet. Let's see how that goes. And okay, that worked okay. And so let's, you know, what happened if we take it down to four or 500 feet? And that seemed to work okay. And this is just the way technology evolves. It's kind of a trial and error process. But what I think has happened is that they got a little carried away with themselves okay and so you know they're now a lot of these wells are now spaced 100 or 200 feet from each other and as you stated nicely if if you know if there's three of us drinking from a milkshake we're all going to feel pretty good about it until we get near the bottom. And then we measure, well, how much did each of us actually drink? And lo and behold, you add it up and it's just the volume of one cup of milkshake. (laughs) We didn't get any more. We just got it out faster. And that's what technology does. And I kind of hate to tell people this because, you know, there's some kind of a belief that with better technology, we're going to produce more energy. And that's not true. What we're going to do and what we have done historically is be able to access what we already know is there faster, mostly, and in some cases, more energy economically. In other words, we can get at reserves that previously were not commercial. And so, you know, all these things are positive. Don't get me wrong. It's just you don't get to have it both ways. You know, you don't get to have five people drinking from the same milkshake and expect you're going to get more milkshake out of one cup of milkshake. It's just not going to happen. So that's the situation. And like I said, you know, I don't want to get too technical with people
5: and I don't want to confuse people. But I think it makes sense when you think about it. Now, I wonder if you would put into perspective, Art, how much of a major impact U.S. shale has had on world output as it has been a major factor behind the increase in oil production that has allowed the globe to grow its economies because you need oil to grow in an economy. And the U.S. has been a major factor because you haven't seen anything like what happened in the U.S. where we went from four or five million barrels to 13. You haven't seen that in Russia. You haven't seen it in OPEC. I'll put that into perspective and its importance when this starts to decline, as all oil wells do. Sure, Jim.
6: Well, so for those of us who, who remember, and I imagine that Many of the people listening to this podcast, you know, if you're even 30 or 40 years old, can remember back in the early part of the 21st century, we didn't know where we were going to get more oil from. World oil production had pretty much flattened out. And so in 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, we just weren't able to grow production. And yet the world population was growing and demand for oil was increasing. And this was around the time that peak oil became kind of a big deal. Because if we, in fact, reach the peak of production, then the only way up for price going forward is, is up. Right? I mean, it just makes sense. And that's, in fact, what happened that, you know, a big factor behind the financial collapse in 2008 was that oil prices reached $140 a barrel in the money of the time. And so, you know, convert that to today's money and you're talking like 160 $170 a barrel. So, I mean, that was an all-time record high for oil prices in real dollars. And for people who don't think that has a big effect on the economy, I got news for you. I mean, energy underlies the cost of everything in your business. And if the price of oil goes up by 20, 30 percent, then your cost of business is going to go up, depending on the business you're in, by some substantial fraction of that 20 or 30 percent. And that was a factor in the financial collapse. I don't want to get distracted with that right now. But to answer your question, what happened was that those higher prices for oil gave Producers the incentive to take some risks and figure out, well, you know, maybe we can access some oil that we know is there using a new technology, fracking and horizontal drilling that so far hasn't been tried and they were successful. And so between about 2010 and 2014, the US, with a little help from Canada, added about 4 million barrels a day to the world market that hadn't been there before. Now, I mean, when the supply of oil goes up or down a few hundred thousand barrels, there's a little bit of a political dispute in Libya or, you know, some... Pipeline spills in North Dakota. I mean, the price of oil can go up a couple of dollars just from a few hundred thousand barrels going out for a short time. But here we had four million barrels coming in that wasn't going away. And the result was that those 90 or $100 oil prices, which was about the average from 2011 to 14, just fell to the floor. At the end of 2014, and we were suddenly looking at $40 oil, and we were in that. $40, $50 $40, $50 range for several years because the world had more oil than it needed. And almost all of that new supply was coming from the United States and specifically coming from these so-called shale plays. So it had a tremendous effect. It continues to have a tremendous effect. And if it starts to decrease, that will have a tremendous effect, except it'll go in the other direction, which is to say less supply and higher
5: oil prices. You know, the one thing about total U.S. oil production, I wonder if you address this. Conventional oil is only 32% of production today, and that has not increased in the last 15 years. So whether it's offshore, onshore, conventional is only about 4 million barrels. So if shale is going to start to decline, just like other oil wells, what does this mean in this decade for oil production overall? Well, it obviously means that it's
6: probably going to decline, and this is exactly what happened in the 1980s. That the U.S. had its first peak in oil production in 1970, which was about 10 million barrels a day, and it started to decline. And by 2007, 2008, you know, we were down to about five dollars, five million barrels a day from 10. So U.S. production slid by half. And the result of that was that oil prices went up a lot and things got a lot tougher because Americans had to export their dollars to other countries to buy their oil. And the US went from becoming largely oil independent to becoming the world's largest oil importer. And just to be clear, we still are a major oil importer. And, you know, and that may be, well, how can that be? Some people might say. And that's because not all oil is the same. I mean, you know, you pull up to to fill your car at the gas pump. And there's more than one type of gasoline available. In fact, there's usually, you know, three different grades, plus there's diesel. And so if you happen to drive a diesel car, you got four different choices. And if you put the wrong kind of gasoline in your car, or heaven forbid you put diesel (laughs) in a gasoline car, you could be in trouble. At the very least, your engine might knock, or at the very worst, you put diesel in or vice versa, and you put gasoline into a diesel car, you might ruin your engine. Oil's that way too. And so, as it turns out, most of the oil produced in the United States, and this is not just shale, is what we call light oil. It's good for making gasoline. It's not so good for making diesel and and jet fuel and some other things. And so, we export a lot of it, but in return, we have to import a lot of the heavier oil that our refineries need to make diesel and kerosene and jet fuel and all the other things. And so, when you hear these stories of, well, you know, the United States, States is getting close to being a net exporter of oil. First of all, that includes refined products. Okay. I mean, crude oil, we're never going to be a net importer, a net exporter of crude oil. But my point is, is that, you know, if I'm producing gasoline and I'm driving a, a diesel car, I'm going to send the gasoline somewhere else to sell it because I don't need it in my car. That's what we're doing. Okay. So again, it's complex and I don't want to, you know, confuse people, but. There are different grades of oil that are good for different things. And as it turns out, American oil is not so good for a lot of the things that Americans need. So we export it and we import other people's oil. It is good. And that's fine. I mean, that's the way an integrated world trade system and economy is supposed to work. I got something you need. You got something I need. Let's make a deal, right? I mean, that's great. It's not necessarily a competition.
5: I want to go to something the EIA is projecting that we will maintain this production of 13.1 or thirteen two million barrels a day from 2024 to 2050. What are they saying that allows them to make those projections that are different from somebody like yourself that looks at this differently?
6: Sure. Well, let me say, first of all, that I have a great deal of respect for the U.S. Energy Information Administration who publishes all that information. And without the data that they publish, you know, I'd just be guessing. (laughs) I wouldn't actually have information to research, understand, and explain to people what's going on. And most of the work they do by way of projections or forecasting or prices, I think is pretty good. I mean, that's a hard business to be in. You're going to be wrong. And so I don't want you or anyone else to take anything that I'm saying about the EIA, Energy Information Administration, as a criticism, not at all. However, when it comes to those projections, they are assuming, and they'll tell you stuff, not a secret, they're not just using the proved reserves. In other words, you know, the oil that we've taken to the Securities and Exchange Commission and shown them that it is not only commercial at today's oil prices, but that we can make a 10% return. That's a proved reserve. What the EIA is doing is that they're taking proved probable, which means it's there, but it's not commercial at today's prices, but it may be at some future price, and then possible, which means, well, it may or may not be there. And if it is, it's not going to be commercial at today's prices, but it may be commercial at some future price. And then they're adding in another volume, which is called technically recoverable resources. Okay, so that's a guess. That's something that hasn't yet even been discovered. That's a calculation saying, well, you know, we think based on what we know that there could be some volume that hasn't yet been drilled and produced or has been drilled and maybe it hasn't been produced. And so we're going to add in another volume that... So all of those things proved is proved, at least at today's oil price or the oil price it was booked at. Everything else has a lot of uncertainty around it, and that uncertainty increases. So EIA is saying, if I take all those and add them up and just assume that the industry is awesome, their technology will improve, and somehow prices will rise to meet whatever it takes to make those reserves producible or those resources producible, here's what you get. And so it's not a completely ridiculous
5: projection,
6: but it's got an awful lot of what ifs and maybes in it that probably just aren't going to work out.
5: Now, one of the things you talk about in your recent article that what you see happening in the Permian and Shale plays is flashing yellow, if not red. And if you take a look at what this means, it would probably require everyone's attention. So, you know, we've got this production and that's allowed us to export. It's brought down our trade deficit because we're not importing as much oil. If this was going into decline, as you believe we'll see in this decade, why do you think it's just a few people like yourself? And I'm going to bring up a word here, and we'll talk about this in a second. It's kind of like you're a doomer. You know, you think that the world is not going to work out and bad things are going to happen, which you don't. But why do you think this is not garnering a lot more attention? Because it certainly is with the CEOs of like Pioneer Resources, Harold Hamm at Continental are talking about the shale plays declining.
6: Yeah, and who should know better? Better than me, in some ways, because, I mean, Scott Sheffield at Pioneer and Harold Hamm at Continental, I mean, they see firsthand all the data from all their wells. They got data that I don't have on pressures and daily production rate. And so if, you know, if Scott Sheffield says the Permian is going to decline in less than five years, and Harold Hamm is an expert on the Bakken, and I think he's even a friend and advisor to Donald Trump, so his politics are you know, are very different than some people's who might be called doomers. He's saying, hey, we got to find some new stuff to drill out here. (laughs) You know, this stuff is, you know, kind of exhausting it. I mean, it's exactly what he said. And what he said is, you know, it's going to be tough. It's going to be real tough. Called it tough rock (laughs) is what's left. So I'm not a doomer at all, Jim. I'm a scientist. My job is to describe as best I can the present state of things. Because if you don't clearly understand the present, then how in the world are you going to try to predict the future? Unless, you, you know, you're just pulling it out of the air or something, which is not a very good way to do it, in my opinion. So when I describe the present and it doesn't somehow complement, you know, the pervading popular belief, then people say, oh, well, you're a doomer. I say, no, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, honestly, pessimism and optimism has nothing to do with science. Science is about, you know, what is. And what you do with what is, you know, then you might be optimistic or pessimistic. Well, you know, I hear what you're saying, Art, but I don't believe. I believe that technology is going to find a way somehow, you know, to produce oil for, you know, the next 30 or 40 years. And I just don't believe That the Permian Basin is going to decline. And to that, I say, great, you know, go for it. But I would say to you, if you were my client, understand the risk that's involved because the data doesn't say that's going to be the case. You may be right. I hope you're right, but let's put a risk factor on it. Now, I spent a lot of time in my career doing exactly that, reviewing the portfolios of major oil companies and trying to help them decide, well, you know, what is the probability that this great big number of barrels will actually be there and it will be able to produce it commercially. And when you put a risk factor, you say, well, there's about a 20% chance of it being there. Statistically, that usually means it's not there. I mean, it's just you know, empirical, just dry hole, okay? So what I would say to somebody who says, well, I don't believe your numbers and I'm going to go out and bet against you, I'd say good for you. But realistically, you need to understand that your risk probability is, you're probably looking at a 20% chance of success, which means you're probably going to throw most of that money away if the past is any guide to the future. But somebody needs to do that. I'm thrilled you're going to do that because you might hit a home run. Who knows, right? So, the Doomer thing, you know, I guess I don't mind if people say that about me, but I sure wish that they would understand that really and truly, I want these plays to succeed. And they have. Fields don't last forever. You know, we've been drilling oil fields since 1859. We know how they behave. And these shale plays are fields, they're oil fields. And sure, we have to drill them differently and complete them differently. But once we start producing oil, They're just like any other oil field. And this idea that somehow they're different, well, what you're really saying is that the earth physics of producing oil somehow is different for this oil than for other oil. And yet I told you that, you know, the physical characteristics of the oil is pretty much just the same as every other kind of oil in the United States. So these plays get a pass on the laws of earth physics? I don't think so. If you want to believe that, you know, you can believe in magic too. But that's just not the way oil fields behave. Eventually, they all peak and decline. And so the fact that the Permian appears to be peaking or might peak soon and then decline... That's exactly what we should expect. It's not like some kind of, oh, my God, you know, how did that happen? We didn't see that coming. Of course, we saw that coming. But people don't want to believe it. They just don't want to believe it. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation we can have. But I'll just leave it by saying that people in general and Americans in particular worship at the altar of technology. I mean, we think that technology is God and that technology makes anything anything possible and you know the evidence is no it doesn't it makes a lot of things possible it's a wonderful thing but it doesn't make anything possible and for those who want to go with Elon Musk and colonize Mars you know go for it i don't want to live on mars <laughs> you know if i want to live in the thinking desert you know, I can move to the Sahara and at least I've got an atmosphere. Mars doesn't even have an atmosphere or water. Why would I want to live on Mars? <laughs> you know, that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, this is the sort of, but he, you know, and I respect Elon. I'm not being critical of him. But, you know, he says that and people say, yeah, why not? I mean, that's great. And I say, wait a minute, seriously? I mean, do you understand what you're signing up for here? You I know, mean, I wouldn't mind going to Mars. I think it'd be great. But, no, I'm, I don't want to live there. That would suck. <laughs> so technology, but somehow it, it's heresy to say that technology can't solve all of our problems or can't make everything happen. And I think that's if you're not on board with that. What I think, you know, is sort of a logical and preposterous belief, then they call you a doom.
5: I want to move on to something. And we hear peak Demand for oil because of EVs. That's not something I buy. You know, maybe we get up to 10 to 15%, but in terms of by 2035 or 2050, are we going to have 100% EVs? I don't think so. And the other issue I want to bring up, Barron's just did a front page article this week on the power grid by 2050, where we will need five to six times the amount of power. Heat pumps are going to replace electric air conditioning and heating. EVs should be 15 to 20% of the car fleet. And here's something I think most people don't even realize. AI and the cloud are very power hungry in terms of, you know, it's great we have the cloud, it's great we have AI, but they don't realize the computer centers and the power it takes to run this. It's a Where's that going to come from? Yeah, you know, that's an
6: important question to ponder. But I'll take it even a step further. And let me state right here at the outset I'm 100% in favor of renewable energy, you know, EVs, hydrogen, all that stuff. At the same time, the scientist in me says, you know, curb your enthusiasm, guys. I mean, these things have their limits also. You and Barron's article just, you know, brought up one. You know, all this technology, it has a cost. It's not free. And the more complex you make everything, the more energy it takes to support it. But here's another thing that's, I think, crucial. And that is that, you know, renewable energy and nuclear energy, nuclear fusion, should it... You know, come to pass, and let's just say it will. It's all good for one thing, and that's electric power. And electric power is an important thing, but it's also only 20% of the energy that civilization uses. 20%. So, what are you going to do about the other 80%? And once you solve the 20%, that's great. But what about the other 80%? And what is that other 80%? Well, an awful lot of it's transport. Okay. And so the optimists, the idealists say, well, you know, eventually everybody's going to be driving an electric car. And, well, you know, maybe, but I don't know of any credible source, including the EIA, which we've talked about, the International Energy Agency, which is much more, has much more of a green agenda. I don't know of any organization that forecast that EVs are going to be more than maybe 25% of the vehicle fleet in 2050. Okay. I mean, there it is. And I've got a post, it's free, like everything on my website that I just put out there a couple of days ago. And it's entitled, EVs will have no effect on oil demand. Zero. <laughs> what do I base that on? Data, data. Okay. I mean, I look, I looked, at a country that already has 25% EV penetration, that's Norway, and I look at their oil consumption and it hasn't changed. It's the same, people are gonna use oil I mean, if you know, if you don't put it in your car, you're going to use it for something else, you know, trips to the Bahamas or whatever. So, I mean, in this post, I show that empirically there is no case to be made that EVs will reduce oil demand. And by the way, you know, people, including like the International Energy Agency, they just don't understand how refining works. Refining is a series of products, and guess what? The first thing that comes out of a refinery is gasoline, and so if Let's just say that EVs reduce gasoline demand to zero. Well, you don't get to tell the waiter, I'll take the diesel but hold the gasoline. No, The gasoline gets produced. And I mean to tell you that we're producing 9 million barrels of gasoline a day in the United States. And if nobody wants it, well, first of all, that doesn't mean you don't produce it. So, What are you going to do with it? You're going to burn it? You're going to pour it on the ground? You're going to dump it in a, in a tank? I don't know. Secondly, as you might imagine, the cash flow from gasoline sales is huge. And if nobody wants any gasoline, refiners are not going to be able to carry on and produce the diesel and the kerosene and the jet fuel and the asphalt and everything else that people need. So, I mean, it's just not as simple as people want to imagine that it is. You don't get to just collectively cut out the gasoline and say, oh, it's great. Buy an EV and we'll reduce our oil demand. No, not happening. And if you don't like the logic I just described or don't understand it, fine. Go read my post. Go look at Norway and you'll see zero effect. Zero. There you go. So, you know, there's what we want to believe about the present and the future. And then there's what actually is and what is actually likely to be. And those in energy like just about everything in life are often very different, right? That, I mean, that, That's what I'm describing. And so my goal in all of this is, I mean, I've got another post, why I'm not an oil bear, why I'm not a doomer. I'm just telling you, this is the way it is. I mean, your podcast is called Financial Sense. Well, people who want to invest sensibly need to know what the probability is that these investments are going to pay out. And stay away from the ones that look too risky for them. That's what you want to know. You want to know what's the downside, the upside. And somebody who tells you, look, you know, here's what could happen that's bad. And here's what could happen that's good. And here's the most likely case. That's exactly what everybody, what a smart investor wants to know. And then according to his appetite or her appetite, he or she might say, well, you know, my risk appetite's greater than that. I say, great, go for it. Good luck. Or my risk appetite is less than that. I'm going to pull back. All I'm trying to do is to provide a most likely scenario going forward on energy with some probabilistic ranges so people can understand what should they do about their own situation and their investments going further. And what they do is their business. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not here to tell anyone You should or shouldn't invest in EVs or power grids or oil. You know, I mean, if you're a client of mine and you ask me that, I might tell you. But in general, that's not my function. That's not my expertise. Our
5: final question: Given the fact that you see in shale plays you see yellow and red lights flashing, uh, you also believe that shale is no different than any other oil field. It rises, it peaks, and it declines. If you were appointed the energy czar with the president, what would you begin implementing now, given what you see coming down the pike this decade? Well, the first thing I would do
6: is to take a hard look at US export policies on both oil and natural gas. Not that I would recommend stopping them, but I think we need to take a look at them because again, we can look at a country like the United Kingdom, which today has, I mean, I recently read that if you look at the economic health of the United Kingdom, if you called a state in the United States, it would rank 49th out of 50 states. Now the United Kingdom 15 years ago was a major exporter of oil and natural gas. And today it doesn't even, I mean, it has to import most of its oil and natural gas. So obviously the UK's financial situation is more complicated than just oil and gas, but they were in such a hurry to export all their production that nobody bothered to think about, well, what are we going to do when it runs out? And what's happening to them right now is that they're in a very difficult situation because they have to import and pay the price for the higher price for importing oil and gas. I would take a very hard look because if I'm right, we shouldn't be exporting 4 million barrels a day of crude oil. I mean, that's as much as Iraq produced, an OPEC member. Now, you know, the profits are good and I'm not opposed to free market. I'm just saying that energy security, gosh, if we learned anything from Putin's invasion of Russia, of, of Ukraine... It was, you got to pay attention, you know, to your energy security. Just like as an investor, you know, you don't want to invest all your money and then suddenly you got a big emergency expense and you got no reserves. You can't cover the cost. So that's what I would do. The second thing I would do would be to start talking about how do we conserve our oil and natural gas use. I mean, we treat it like water and we should conserve water. But they do. You know, if, if I can afford it, I should use it. And I'm not suggesting that the government ought to impose any kind of rationing or, you know, excessive taxes or anything. I just think we need to look at these things. We need to get past the assumption that it will always be there because it hasn't always been there and it won't always be there. We're experiencing sort of a, you know, an anomalous period in our history where we found something we didn't think was there, which is shale gas and tight oil, and it bought us 10 years. And what have we done with the 10 years in order to secure our energy future? Zero. We've exported it all. So that's what I would do. I would study it.
5: All right. Well, listen, Art, as we close, why don't you give out your website? You are a prolific writer. You have quite a number of articles on your site that I found very enlightening. How could our listeners find you? It's real simple. It's my name, artberman.com. I'm on. You've got a blog there with numerous articles and see for yourself. Read some of these. It might give you a different perspective. Art, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. Keep up the good work. I always enjoy reading your material. Thanks so much, Jim. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Take care, my friend. Bye. All the best. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888- 486-3939, Four eight six three nine three nine, 486-3939, or you can visit us on our website, financialsensewealth.com. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content, where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and market strategists from around the globe, go to the Financial Sense website and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of the Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management team, We hope you have a pleasant weekend.